Hey guys, it's Jessica Fritz Aguirre, Sticky Beat coming to you from our Clovercrest Media Group studio in this really weird time. I hope everybody is safe and happy and healthy and doing good stuff that gets their mind off the darker stuff that we're all living with right now. I know it's hard. I just got a great instruction on my husband on how not to lean into a microphone. So I'm going to take that advice as we do a question and answer episode of Sticky Beak now. I think one of the hardest things for me with this past week has been that I settle into a routine. I work a nine to five job. I have four kids and Joe does a lot of work, both with Clovercrest and with his real estate workings. And it's been hard to settle into a schedule where I get into my process, which is writing most of the episode through the week, calling audio, and then following up and writing a script that gets refined on Saturday and Sunday, and then we record it on Sunday. That didn't happen yesterday because uh, things have been crazy, and I appreciate you guys hanging on. I thought about doing an episode about FOIA, which is extremely technical, but kind of juicy and fun. But I also thought that might be kind of boring and dry for this week. The title I was going to use for the FOIA episode was Freedom, the one good thing that I got. And I'm going to use it now because we're all kind of stranded in our homes doing uh, what gives us pleasure, hopefully. And this is something that brings me great pleasure is bringing this to you. I also thought about doing an extended episode on Doreen's abuse, and I thought that was wrong and too dark for the time. And so I thought, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And when that happens, um, I bring in Joe. Who doesn't love that? Well, you guys have been asking for Joe, too. He's my executive producer. He's got a lot of cool podcasts on Clovercrest Media. One thing I really like recently is that he's been bringing in a lot of women. There is the Closing Time podcast that he does with Abby Bro Harger. And he does It's Complicated, right, Joe, with Mary Mm -hmm. and her friends, which is great. It's about being single and maybe a little bit older and having kids and what that means for your relationship and for your life. And he's bringing in a new woman that I know from high school named Lovey, who is doing the podcast system. Right? Yeah. Is that well, what it's called? Was a was a fan of yours and is now starting her own podcast, which uh, we highly encourage at Clovercrest Media. And if you visit the website clovercrestmedia.com and you want to start a podcast, you can. And there are so many great ones. Uh, this is a great time if you've ever thought about doing a podcast to start one. Setting one up and kind of getting one going really doesn't take too much, and I would be happy to consult anybody during this time. All right, spin over. Just want to say that Lovey's will be about being a black woman who lives in New Hampshire. She went to Choate with me. She has been very vocal about this podcast, which I know a lot of you have been. I like to hear women show on this network. This isn't necessarily, Joe, right, like a women's podcast, but I guess true crime has been kind of that way recently. It's a genre that's it definitely uh, skews more female than male. Yeah, but that being said, we got a lot of cool questions, right, for, from some guys here. Oh, we so, got great questions from so many great people, and thank you for allowing me uh, to be on Sticky Beak, which has done so well so far, and uh, we're excited to be here. Uh, first question is from Jamie. She asked the question, how did Mark get to California? And I'll add to that, approximately when did he leave, get there, and then return? How did he get back? Well, Brad remembers that he got there in October or November of 88. He couldn't remember the month because his wife had left. 
And we have Mark making Sharon give the gun back on November 23rd of 88. So my timing is, especially because the police say that he was missing from November to June when he was found with Roseanne, that it's November. He just showed up in Brad's driveway. A little background on Brad. Because they hadn't seen each other in a while, as you'll bring us up to speed on. Well, yeah, so Brad is a year older than Mark. They are the two oldest kids of five. And Brad went out to college in 73. Like I said, he's a year older. He's the oldest. He got his degree and started a business out there. Meanwhile, that was sort of the heyday of what Mark was doing, you know, breaking the law-wise. And so there was also the distance between Mark and the rest of the family. So Brad said he got some letters from his mother, Lori, sometimes about Mark and what Mark was up to. But really, uh, there was a big estrangement, and they didn't talk from 73 to 88 when Mark just showed up. The more that I talk to Brad, I think that he just was living his life and he's a smart guy and he is a doer and he went out to, you know, get his degree and he was gone from the family. Also, consider if you're the oldest of five and Mark is the second born and the rest are kids, which they were. He was 18 and it was his time to go. But when Mark showed up, Brad says he showed up in what he called a land barge, which was a big car. He said, um, you know, a family-sized car that wasn't usually the kind of car that Mark would drive, which I think is a little ironic yeah. considering what we're talking about. But I'll say this, the brown truck wasn't in play at all. Right. Okay. That we can definitely rule out as the mode of transportation in California. But my question becomes, where was that brown truck when Mark was in California? Because... That was the truck that he was seen in Huntington with. That was the truck that was uh, searched later. And I have a whole episode on the search of the truck coming up. And what Mark says was found in it and what he admits was found in it. That truck was not in play. And so someone was keeping it somewhere while he was in California. Superfan and Patreon Mimi wanted to know a little bit more about Brad. Uh, you've obviously given us a little bit. Uh, she also wanted to know, did the police write him back? And has Mark responded... <clears throat> at all to that letter no there's been nothing from the police and nothing from mark uh which i guess i would assume is happening look so i recently got acquainted with brad and i think the way that he feels about this is the way that mark vincent's family feels about this they had no idea when doreen went missing because they were kept at a distance by the wallingford police department that anything awry was taking place. They didn't know that she was gone under suspicious circumstances. They thought she had run away. They all suspected maybe Mark had done something, but they all assumed that the police department was doing everything that it should be doing to take care of her case. They find out recently that that's not the case. And that's not just me saying that. I think anybody listening to this podcast knows that there have been some missteps for whatever reason that may be, in 1980 and in the present. But they also recently found out about the sexual abuse, which they didn't know about, the sexual abuse of Doreen, I mean, and that horrifies them. And they, they don't understand why nothing was done when those signals were flaring. Did anybody respond to the email Brad sent and copied several no. people on? No. Okay. No, and it's funny because same thing with Brad. He sent that one night and it was under the subject line unknown. And I clicked on it. I sent it at like 1030 at night. And he's about three hours behind us. And I thought it was addressed to Pastor Rick. And I was 
oh my God, you know, this is insane. I can't believe he copied me. I mean, he copied other people on this too. There's other people that received a copy of that, but I thought he sent it to Pastor Rick. So I sent a response. I said, Brad, thank you for your support. Pastor Rick, I'm going to give you a call in the morning, but as we can discuss, Joe, I never really followed up with Teen Challenge at all. Just to follow up one more time then with Mimi, another gray area she'd mentioned was Teen Challenge. Uh, She asked if you could break down what you know about the organization. Who have you been in touch with? How have they responded, if at all? Are you in touch with any of the local or national members? And is Mark's son still in the Vermont Teen Challenge that apparently Pastor Rick is also in charge of? Yeah, so Pastor Rick, they're like franchises. So Pastor Rick is in charge of Connecticut and Vermont. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like his two franchises, basically. And national leadership, I haven't gotten in contact with them. But as far as I know, each state or group runs their portion of Teen Challenge. Paul Vincent is still there. As far as I know, Teresa told me she had her list um, that Paul was supposed to bring to Teen Challenge. I asked her to send it to me. She said she accidentally deleted it, but it was a toothbrush. And I guess Paul is ensconced there, and I just hope for the best for him wherever he is. I think it's a terrible situation. As far as Teen Challenge is concerned, I have not contacted Pastor Rick. I don't necessarily think that that would do any good. I've also been in charge with a lot of people representing that they've been from Teen Challenge, represent Teen Challenge, and they want to either tell me a whole bunch of stuff and tell me it's lies, or tell me Teen Challenge is a great place where everyone makes their own money, or, you know, there was the guy who is the Gnostic or whatever that wanted right he wanted to invite me to look with him on the dark web for stuff about uh child molesters and that's just one step i'm not going to take right now he also wanted to have a party selling doreen merchandise and that is definitely a step i'm gonna take never when you first look up teen challenge what is it that comes up in the google search almost legitimate it's a legitimate yeah. organization uh, almost it's an upright christian legitimate organization if you google it cult comes <clears> up <throat> and there's a lot of people who are unhappy with the methodology used by teen challenge well there's also been a woman who has gotten in touch with me she's a documentarian and she wants to do a documentary on abuses in teen challenge but they mean abuses of the people receiving treatment there and, you know, physical abuse and emotional abuse. I've learned from a lot of the people who, again, represent to be from Teen Challenge, and this might not be the case, that the gay members aren't looked on so kindly and maybe the minority members aren't looked on so kindly. I know that they're paying people peanuts to do the work that Mark directs them to do. But there are a lot of people abused in that situation, and this woman has reached out to me to ask me for information about this. But this is really a very insulated case. I can do a whole project on the Teen Challenge abuse or alleged abuse, but this is more about Doreen. And look, Pastor Rick is not willing to talk about it. He says that Mark is saved in the arms of Jesus, whatever he did or didn't do. So I do know Debbie went there, Aunt Debbie, one day. She had been calling, and I think they might have known she was coming. And she went to the front door, and they kind of barred her at the front door. They've got big guys, and they wouldn't let her go around the back. Or I think, or they took her around the back, or it was something like that. But, you know, Mark's hiding out there. He has been since 2003. 
So perhaps a formal letter and an email to Pastor Rick for comment would be appropriate. Uh, yeah. And with that in mind, Kate brings a question in kind of in a similar fashion. Has Mayor Dickinson of Wallingford ever been asked his thoughts on this crime, obviously committed against a child in his town that's gone unsolved for as long as it has? No. And that's something, you know, as I sit here and I think about it and I have all this extra quarantine time, I'm really, I've never sent him a letter or called him because I always feel like the answer would never be satisfactory. You know, here's, and I don't mean to make light of anything, and I don't mean to make this show political, but here is a guy who is laughing about coronavirus just the other day. He is requiring all town officials to be present for their job and for town meetings to continue. Uh, He's done this in the past, you know, last mayor to approve Narcan for police officers facing opioid overdoses and last mayor to honor Martin Luther King Day in Connecticut. This is just how he operates. It always stuck with me, and I was going to use this in a future episode, but this is like, it just, it rings in my ears every time I hear it. Do you remember in the very beginning when you told me to get in touch with the people up at the real estate, like, you know, the the landowners and the people with the real estate holdings up on Whirlwind? Yes. And I talked to that one woman whose name is anonymous, but she said to me, if Mayor Dickinson could have drawn a moat around this town and kept it in the 1930s forever, he would have. Well, I think in his mind he has. And I think by keeping technology (laughs) away and by treating things business as usual, I think that he thinks that that's the right move. But again, I think formally we should reach out to him probably by his favorite means of communication, like a telegraph. Carrier pigeon. A carrier pigeon or something super (laughs) old-fashioned. Just so everyone knows, wait, just because there's there's only a small percentage of people listening in Connecticut. Mayor Dickinson does not allow internet for everyone in the town. Wallingford PD only got the internet in 2014. Before that, they had to go across the street to solve crimes using the library computer. And in town hall, you have to sign up for times. You're not allowed to have the internet on your work computer. You have to sign up for a block of time and you can't take the internet home with you. There's no working from home. And this is a place with municipal utilities. But he also doesn't believe it's possible to work from home. He believes that that people aren't able to do that, which well, I I'm find doing interesting. I'm right now. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, why would, why would a person's mindset be people can't effectively do their jobs from home when if you're online, you can do your job from home? There, there's no reason why you can't or why you shouldn't at least attempt to do that for the safety and well-being of people. Again, it's a mindset. It's not a good one, but it is a mindset. That is for sure. All jokes against Mayor Dickinson aside, and, you know, this, we try to use dark humor in this podcast, which I think is a good thing. But at the same time, if you're talking about a mindset, you're talking about a guy who is facing the situation where it's a little girl. She was there for 10 days. Her family was from out of town. Wallingford does not regard um, other cities and towns well, especially ones that are of lower economic status, I think. A carpenter who was renting, who was there for 10 days, and then his daughter's a runaway. You know, that story of Doreen reverberates through the whole thing. And I feel like they didn't really care about her because she wasn't necessarily one of their own, which, forgive me if I'm wrong, but it just, that feels like it's true. On the thought of internet, Margaret would like to know, have any members of Doreen's family submitted DNA to Ancestry sites? I don't expect they'd find her, but might bolster the case that she's not alive. I don't know about Ancestry sites, but I do know that Donna and her mom, Jane, gave DNA. 
So they do have Doreen's DNA if they ever have anything to compare it against. Okay. Josh, and you've mentioned FOIA a couple times, Josh asks, or says first and then asks, you spoke in one episode about a FOIA request for the Bethel Police Department. What documents do you believe they could share? Okay, this is a multi-part answer. So number one, just my investigative process, I look for everything. It might say zero on that page, but my uh, experience this whole time has been that everything bears out. There's a tiny little nugget of something that leads to something else. So I don't necessarily know what they would have to say, but here's what I would be looking for specifically. Members of Mark's family have told me that Bethel Police Department has had it out for Mark since the very beginning. Again, he's been committing crimes for a very long time, and that's where he grew up, and they're very focused on him. Wallingford Police Department, in sort of the same vein, has also been very vocal about what was accomplished with the gun. You know, we talked about the gun last episode. It was a Bethel Police coup. It was a Bethel Police victory. The Wallingford Police Department had nothing to do with that, besides finding the gun. Credit to them for finding the gun. But Bethel was the one that took and ran with that. And they were the ones that were there when Mark stormed out of his pre-sentencing interview. I've heard rumors of that, but I want to know the full story if there's any record. I want to see any sort of bond negotiations that were done, who signed off on those. If anybody signed off on him being released on bond, I don't know if that Carol woman, who I mentioned last time, signed off. But again, there's a number of different little stones that I can kick over in those documents. I just want to exhaust everything. Well, recently we went through the dead leads and we found something in the dead leads. And I think if you know what you're looking for, right? you'll know, you know what I mean? You need to know what you're looking for. You need to know what you have <laughs> to know what you're looking for, to know what you're going <laughs> to find. Or where, where you may find something that doesn't seemingly fit. But if you know the whole story, maybe it plugs in nicely somewhere because there's some serious gaps, obviously, in this story. Well, we've had this conversation, Joe, you and I personally many times. What is Wallingford missing when it looks at this case? What is it missing? That it does not have right now. Oh, like a serious overview of all of the evidence to understand what's in the file. Because obviously we know, I mean, maybe this has changed, but they hadn't read the file when we met with them. They didn't know some of the most basic information. Well, as far as we met with them in March of 2019, when I was calling Jim Cifarelli for information in April, he provided some of it, but it took him a while to get back to me. And he... Well, he chastised me, too, told me that, you know, this is not the only thing I have to work on and I don't work on the weekends. And I don't know if that's true now that he's been promoted to lieutenant, but this is not the only thing on my plate. I mean, they say now that the Wallingford police are working. They've taken off the remainder of their caseload. They're dealing with this at a 90 percent clip. It's two guys. But if you haven't read the file and if you're not really taking in the sexual abuse allegations and who was driving what car when and who said what to who and where someone was and there might have been DV stones. I mean, we've got this, Joe and I have it pretty much mapped out in our heads. And if you're not talking to us, then fine, I'll toot our own horn. You should be talking to us. Well, that's 100% true, obviously. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't go to the best source that you have who has the most information and bombshells that have still never been released here or anywhere other than between you, me, and one other person, and that's as far as that's ever gone. Well, and to be really fair with those bombshells, it's not something that I'm holding out on for podcast ratings. I'm holding out on them because we're developing them as we speak. Right. It's information that we have that is in and of itself blockbuster-ish, trying to figure out where it all ties in 
And if it does, the ramifications it might have on the bigger picture. Yeah, and I can't share it because there are people listening that are really listening to see where I'm going with this. And, and the police don't know this. No, the, I, well, as far as I know, they don't know this, but they I mean, don't. All right, Deanna has a great question about Paul O'Connell. Uh, Deanna says, when the park ranger saw Mark, did he chase after him? How did the ranger not catch him if he was carrying something large? Well, to answer your first question, he didn't chase him. Thus, the reason why he didn't catch him. And I want to say, Paul O'Connell, from everything you've told me, and based on his record, is a outstanding yeah, ranger and officer for the Department of Environmental Protection, Environmental Protection DEP. So I, I don't want to badmouth this guy at all, but let's talk about Paul O'Connell because it was interesting how we even found out we had sort of a connection to Paul and it trickled back to us that he'd like to talk to you. And then a couple days later when you guys talked, it was kind of a different situation. Well, it's cool because the way that we found out about Paul O'Connell was through listeners, Sticky Beak and Faded Out listeners who called Paul up and said, hey, they're talking about you on this podcast. So he started listening. I know his daughter was listening. But unfortunately, everything he told me is off the record because by the time I met with him about two days after I first made contact with him, and this was... um. I believe mid-June, it was Eden's graduation day. He was out having some drinks with his friends in Glastonbury, and I went out and met with him. And he had been really excited to tell me everything he knew. He had information. This is so great, blah, blah, blah. And then about two days later, he was on lockdown. He said, I... I refer you to my report. I don't want to speak out of turn. I'd have to refresh my memory with the report, and I don't have it. He told me that if I get it through FOIA and I can review it, then he's happy to review it with me. So was he able to tell you anything? Yo, he was. I mean, he went through his... I know about that night, and I know what all his stations were, and I found out about what kind of equipment he wears and what kind of gear he was uh, carrying the night that he was there. He did not follow Mark into the woods. He actually, and this is from an article that featured Hanley later on, Hanley called O'Connell obsessed with the truck. And take that for what you will. I know that O'Connell, from outside sources, stayed with the truck for a really long time, wrote down and cataloged the dings in the truck, you know, where there was a, a handmade toolbox that someone had built into the back of the truck, which were all uh, known to be uh, featured on Mark's truck as well when they searched it a year later. But here's the thing that's always bothered me. I don't understand if he ever got the license plate. And if he did, why that has been a point of contention, because it was clearly Mark's truck. And if he didn't, why he didn't. Is it possible Mark took the plates <clears throat> off because of what he was doing? But wouldn't you say that in, in a report or wouldn't you note that I didn't get the plates? I think in the article it says Paul O'Connell got the plates. But here's the other thing that bothers me is if you think someone's carrying a body or a carpet or something that looks like a kid into the forest, why wouldn't you wait with the truck? What if the person has a weapon and comes out and ambushes you? I don't know. There's so many. This is the hard part I've about never this been case. a park ranger, so I don't know what my duties and responsibilities are. Mark obviously made it a point when he texted me about it that, you know, what was it? Was it a body? If it was a body, they would have found it by now. I mean, Mark obviously puts himself in the park in case anybody needs that. I mean, Mark, literally, I, I can give you the messages from Mark. 
Yeah. Well, told me he was in the park. He said it. He placed himself there. He did place himself there. And when he said, what was I carrying, a body or a picnic basket? I mean, he's been known to make these elaborate, well-put-together, well-constructed carpentry boxes right. that I have pictures of. So as far as Paul O'Connell is concerned, I feel confident we'll be able to get a lot out of FOIA and I think that if I have his report, then I'll be able to talk to him again. He was a cool guy, bought me a couple drinks, you know, we listened to the jukebox or whatever. He smoked a cigar. Nice guy. And his daughter's name is Jessica, so that's cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. It's a very common name. Samantha has a question. I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to give you something else. Samantha asks, what made this case be classified as a homicide? Was there some evidence that suggests she's definitely not alive? Now, the Record Journal posted in the newspaper, headline, Police, Wallingford Missing Child Case Now a Homicide Investigation, written by Lauren Tacoris from the Record Journal staff. I'll read you just the first couple paragraphs. The state's attorney's office has reclassified the 1988 disappearance of 12-year-old Doreen Jane Vincent from a missing person case to a homicide investigation. Police Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe said police are investigating a suspect and expect to submit an arrest warrant, possibly within the next year. Oh, God. Well, what do you want me to break down about that? All okay, that. First of all, <laughs> first of all, as far as I know, there's no new evidence on the case. Now, again, I will do an entire FOIA episode on this, walking everybody through everything, because, you know, maybe I am a nerd, but it really is very interesting, technical, but very interesting. So we had our first hearing in August, August 15th. Remember, Joe, they made us come back from the Cape. Yeah. By the way, uh, if you're a Patreon member, you can get audio and video from the FOIA hearings that will be up soon if it's not already up. Good plug. Good. All right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Patreon.com slash Beak or whatever it is. We were on the Cape with our four kids and we had to come back because Wallingford wouldn't extend the date for us to enjoy the rest of our vacation. That's when we knew our partnership was going to go <laughs> swimmingly. So we came back and uh, I prepped for it. I went to I was in the library in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where my grandparents have a house, and I prepped for the FOIA hearing. They were supposed to present on whether their exemptions applied, which means, is there a prospective law enforcement action? Is that happening? And do you remember, Joe, what Chief Wright said about it? That it had been submitted to the cold case unit, PowerPoint presentation, <clears throat> they kicked it back, told them to make some changes, and that if they investigated like five different things, that they could resubmit it and Possibly, no, no, it could be taken up by the state's attorney's cold case unit. Possibly, but do you remember when I said, uh, is this going to turn into an arrest and maybe a trial? And he said, hopefully, hopefully. possibly, and hopefully. hopefully. And you know what? Here's another person that I don't want to drag through the mud. Chief Wright's a really good guy. I feel like, you know, unfortunately, we caught someone with their pants down. It wasn't Chief Wright, maybe it was 8089 WPD. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the truth will come out. So, after the August hearing, we all submitted briefs on uh, whether they could even properly claim the exemption. They're not the prosecutor, so they shouldn't and they can't. Then just recently, we had another hearing that was kicked out to February 
because there was uh, flooding. Yeah, a pipe you, burst in the do, building. Do you? I got so many jokes about the pipe burst in the building. Somebody said, um, do you picture Marv and Harry from Home Alone like smashing at the pipes, like the wet bandits or whatever? I mean, it was weird. We were ready to go, remember? It was oh, about yeah. an hour away. That was terrible. It was about an hour away. So second hearing in February where we had to come in and they had to, the Wallingford Police Department had to offer extra evidence about how there was a prospective law enforcement action. Now, in the past, they have tried to conflate an investigation with a prospective law enforcement action, which is not the same thing. One is done by the police department. One is done by the state's attorney's office. And so they came in and they dropped a brief on me actually about a day and a half before the hearing with extra information that they wanted the hearing officer to consider from like, I think, Kentucky and New Hampshire about why the case should go their way. Again, Connecticut case law does not bear well for them. We went in and they said it had been changed to a homicide investigation. So that was a lot of rambling to get to the main point, which is I see no evidence. I think it's a stall tactic. I don't want to spoiler alert for your FOIA episode, but the other thing to come out of that, in addition to it being changed to a homicide case, more importantly, it's no longer going to be handled by the state's attorney's cold case unit. Because they took it away. Wallingford's going to work on it in-house, as they have been for 32 unsuccessful years. Well, right. What's changed? Nothing. Okay. Uh, Amy and Jacqueline had a really great <laughs> question. That's all I got to say about that. Well, Sticky Beak has happened, right? And wait, can we talk a little right, bit? But, of- hey, how about come be a part of it? Come ask us what we have. You know, I mean, be mean about it or whatever, you know? Play good cop, bad cop, guys. Whatever you want to do, the evidence is all here for you. Somebody asked me, somebody really close to the case asked me a long time ago, before they decided to become involved, why wouldn't Wallingford and you just work together? Why wouldn't you just make peace and come together for an obviously shared goal? And my response was, well, it's become a pissing contest. And I I don't think this person was really interested in being involved in a pissing contest, a contest where it mattered to me who found her or who was responsible or who claims the prize. I don't want any of that. I mean, look, it's great to be able to get her story out. I love that all of you guys are listening, and I'm really proud of the work that I've done. I know what I've done to get this in their face, and it's not a pissing contest for me. We'll dive into that. Uh, in another question a little bit later on. All great points. Okay. Sorry, I just get really, you know. No, I understand. Sometimes you just want to rant. <laughs> uh, Amy and Jacqueline, I guess, combined on this question. Uh, is there anything being done to find Doreen with dogs? Like in the cement at the house or Huntington State Park, where Mark has so many emotional connections. With it now being homicide, will state or federal help be provided? Well, so as Joe just touched on, there's no federal help, Okay. I think there should be federal help given the possibility of trafficking a minor among state lines. That hasn't happened. The FBI is not listening to anybody who calls them. And believe me, we're all calling them. State help has been rescinded now because the Wallingford police have decided they don't need the state's attorney's office. So that's off the table. Also, as far as I know, off the table is a search of that house because that family is just not interested. And look, I understand why, but the police have a duty that I can't, you know, I can't do anything about that. They, they chase me off the property. I get it. I'm a podcaster. I'm not a police officer who can go up there and say, look, it's time we look at that property. As far as Huntington State Park is concerned, I know they were doing that every spring for a while, but I think it was just 
until the mid-90s, I want to say, because recently police officer there told me that uh, they hadn't done it in years. So, okay, it's an 800-square-mile park. I don't really know where they would look exactly, although they are the ones with uh, Paul O'Connell-specific instructions on that old Dodgington Road parking area where they used to throw out the garbage. You would have to assume that wherever that area was, any other areas Mark knew were probably in that same vicinity. I mean, it's a big park, but he's from the Bethel area. He knows the Bethel part of the park and the access points. So, I mean, again, if you wanted to just try to narrow it down immediately for a search with dogs, I'd probably hit the Bethel entry points. Well, that, again, Old Dodgington Road is one of those. We don't know anything about those uh, stones spelling out DV because it was just tossed off recently by Thomas Hanley to a member of Mark's family as being something weird. But we don't know where those are. Maybe they do. Maybe they cordoned it off and dug and used cadaver dogs. I don't have any information on that. The other thing is Mark's father's memorial service in Huntington. So... I do know that the police recently took a walk in Huntington State Park after listening, literally the day of or the day after listening to the podcast where I talked about Mark's memorial for his father or the family's memorial. They went through a walk in that area. And as far as I know, they'd know that information now for weeks, if not months. And after the podcast came out, they called someone up and arranged a tour and they went on a tour of that spot. Interesting. You think they would do more of that? Well... Or maybe come right to the source. He, well, here's another one. Roseanne Poloni. I gave her a voice on the podcast. I thought, great character. And she's a real human that deserves recognition. She played a part in this, and she had a life, and I don't want to just chalk her up as any victim. So like I said, I got in touch with her family member. And that podcast episode broadcast, I think it was Raspberry Season, right? We talk about she was like Stevie Nicks, but better. And uh, they went to see the Polonies the next day at their general contracting business. So I just think, you know, Come to the source. If you want to collaborate, we are here to collaborate. You mentioned the cement patio. Uh, Mimi, super fan, has a whole lot of questions. <laughs> Mimi. And, and because she's such a super fan, I'm going to hit some more of her questions. And there is actually a few more. Well, she's a patron, too. Yes. So I think that's. No, no. She should Mimi's get her great. Questions Mimi answered. gets what Mimi wants. I have questions on the front porch and the foundation. She wants to know what is absolutely true and what is rumor. Uh, she says, I'm not convinced she's there. I think we all thought she was there for a while, right? Easy. You always used to say that, Joe. If this case doesn't involve other people, <laughs> that's got to be the most logical place because it just has to be. Well, you've said before, what were the chances of Mark just laying cement? But, you know, Mark might be that kind of guy. Hey, my daughter's missing. Uh, I'm going to lay some cement. I don't know. All right. I, the probability on that is, come on. So here's what I know about the cement. Donna and Carol swear they saw it. I mean, they have a very visceral memory of being steered around the marked off place where the concrete was, right? Jimmy Farnham does not remember any concrete at all. In mm -hmm. fact, he said Mark never did any work for him on the house at all. Yet contradicted by... Well, Laura West. <laughs> okay. Laura West says that when they eventually dug the septic up, now this was in June or July of 89, right? When mm -hmm. things started to go off the rails and Wallingford realized it maybe had something bigger on its hands. The investigator who Donna had hired for a dollar because she'd already gone through three was the one who dug it up. 
uh, nothing there. But Laura says it always really creeped her out because the septic was right next to the concrete or the cement. And that's why they dug it up because they thought something might have leached in. Now, I don't know enough, I guess, about concrete and septic systems, but I don't know. It's I don't I that image I don't care for. Well, if anybody knows a concrete expert or somebody who has access to those uh, machines that can tell if the ground's been um, unsettled, let us know. Well, you know, Joe, you and I have joked before, and it is a joke because we're not going up to the property, but we've talked about, you know, getting an excavator from Home Depot or whatever. I mean, look, that would be the first obvious place you would look. Another thing Jimmy Farnham mentioned when I asked him about the concrete patio or the cement patio was... He said, absolutely not. Mark did no work. But then he immediately started talking about the sun porch that he made off to the side of the house. There's no permit for any of that. There's no permit for the concrete or cement or a patio or a cement patio or any of those things. So right now, without the police being able to take a closer look, or maybe they are, we don't know. It's unfortunate that the police haven't been up there. They claimed that they had talked to the homeowners, but when we mentioned the homeowners' names, the police had never heard of those <laughs> was... people. So clearly, they had not done that. Whether they've done it since, I would have to say no, because we know they're still not interested in helping out as far as excavation or, or even looking or being on the property. Yeah, but the last, the last thing we have on that is Debbie's letter to them in March. Right. And or May. And I think that they might have gotten in touch with the police, but we don't we don't know. Well, maybe they are. And maybe the police are about to drop the bombshell. Wouldn't that be great? They say they have extra forensic evidence that they're testing. So that would be my question, I guess. What kind of forensic evidence are you testing? But that's something we're never going to get out of FOIA if they're going to use it in a prospective law enforcement action. Right. Of course we won't. Now, another question for you. Nancy Fatal's got a whole bunch. Nancy's a patron too, so good. Yes, so we're going to let her get all her <laughs> questions in. And Mimi's loving all this. Uh, she's seconding all, all of these questions anyway. She asked, did you speak with Richard Novia directly? No. You've tried repeatedly. I had tried reaching out to him as well. We have. He's really underground. Did we leave a voicemail? Did we hear his voice on a voicemail or am I dreaming? I think we've gotten disconnected phones all the way. He's got a protected Twitter account. He's got a protected Facebook account. I mean, definitely him because there's a scar on his face that you can match up. But no, just his report. Which is weird that the police have given me redacted because it's not really their report to give, right? Right. Well, it shouldn't be. It's Donna's report. And we have a good idea what's now been redacted. I don't yeah. think you want to get into that yet on the podcast, but I think you have some thoughts about those redacted pages and, and what we now believe is there based on, a, on an eyewitness. Yes. And there's definitely a lot of stuff in there that's blanked out about Novia's conversations with Mark what Mark told him. I know that Novia said that Mark lied a lot, but there's a lot of conversations with Mark in there that are blanked out. Also stuff from her diary, which is interesting to me because, I mean, guys, I think that's all the sexual abuse stuff. Doesn't like Sharon, doesn't like Wallingford, likes certain boys, has crushes on certain movie stars, and I think sexual abuse, which is heavily redacted out. And if the police claim they didn't know about it, then... 
or now, then they're lying, right? Uh, Nancy was wondering uh, what he was doing in the basement. Did the cops ever go down to the basement? She says it's strange he was in the workshop tonight, he says Doreen went missing. But while Novia surveilled him on numerous nights, he was toiling away at something in the basement. What do we know about the basement? I don't know anything about the search of that house because they've played really fast and loose, as I've previous, as I've previously said, with that search of the house. They won't tell me who signed it. It was a consent search which means the owner can consent, the uh, renter can consent, but at that time, Mark and Sharon were gone. So I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy. Jimmy consented to a search of the house. I They tell me they brought dogs. But he said he doesn't remember ever talking to the police or them talking to him. So him consenting to a search doesn't jive. Well, yeah. I mean, there's... Right. Again, this is a very fuzzy area, this search of, I don't know when it took place, the search of the house. I know they were in the room because they found the broken glass on the inside. Someone pointed out to me on the page the other day, of course, if glass breaks on the inside of a window, someone's trying to get in. Right, the glass. Not trying to get out. Right, yeah. As far as the basement, I don't know anything because they won't share any of that search warrant with me or what came of it. Again, it's striking that he's not in jail given all of the stuff that compounds as far as circumstantial evidence is concerned. But um, when I talked to the women, Donna and Debbie and Carol, they remember Novia telling them that Mark was digging out in the backyard in the middle of the night. And I think as 32 years has gone by, that's all been conflated between the grave that, you know, Jimmy Farnham says maybe was a Yale forestry school student or Mark in the basement. They're all kind of... um creepy but there's nothing that i can see right now that shows us that he was necessarily doing anything nefarious down there what i'm more concerned with are his you know midnight travels back and forth to bethel and redding and he says he was in waterbury and bridgeport nancy wants to know if you've talked to the new cold case detective or have the police (laughs) at all been in contact with you other than through the lawyer not through the lawyer so my last contact you know joe and i went in march and talked to DeMeo and cifarelli and Wright, and we came out of that meeting feeling i think right joe really good oh i thought really they wanted good. to really play ball but we really were very jazzed up we were feeling energetic we had a lot of stuff to do a lot of work to do the police asked me to get them their the timeline and a bunch of contacts that they could talk to which I know they've done to other people as well. They want everyone else's contact while not re-interviewing people, right, Right. Joe? which is such an interesting tactic. The Wallingford Police Department told us the way they handle cold cases must be from a different school of police work because Jess and I spend all of our time watching cold cases (laughs) to figure out how you solve a cold case. And in every single cold case that I've seen be solved, The number one thing they like to do, take a fresh look at the case (laughs) and re-interview all the living witnesses to see if anybody remembers something that maybe they didn't realize was important then, that's important now. The Wallingford police, on the other hand, are of a different mindset. Well, like I've said on this- Their concern is, is that you might remember things differently or misremember or just start making stuff up. And so they don't want people's memories to be affected- because they would rather just sit there and hope that the evidence just sort of comes together on its own. Yeah, it manifests. Because I guess that would be the only way for that to work. Well, also, if you want to talk about, you know, people they consider bit players, right? Like Jimmy Farnham and Laura West. They listened to the tape of Jimmy Farnham. They said, no new questions to be asked there. Just sounds like a guy you interrupted on a Sunday, which is the same thing they said about me and the homeowners, right? Laura West, they were supposed to have me come in. So Jim Cifarelli's partner at the time was Steve Jakes. 
And he told me that they were going to have me in to compare and contrast and listen and re-listen to Farnham and West and listen to their audio. That never happened because uh, Lieutenant Cifarelli was promoted. He handed me off to Steve Jakes. I believe that was mid-April. So about two weeks or three or four weeks, Joe, after we spoke to them, he was getting promoted. He wasn't on it anymore. And I asked for Steve Jakes' contact information. I didn't get it. And then shortly after that was when I discovered that Jim Cifarelli's brother was working as a director for Teen Challenge. And that's when all the contact got cut off. And then I asked for Jakes's information again, and it was never given again. So then I waited. Oh, it was a month. We sat tight for about a month before I finally sent them a FOIA request because I thought, right, just like they had told us, don't talk to Mark. Don't call this person. Don't call that person. And we had been waiting from March into April to not call people. And then I think finally we said, screw it, we're going to do it. Great. Well, I had a plan that they asked me to put on hold so that they could do a few things and then seemingly didn't. Well, and that was literally a year ago. Right. Maybe they're still working on it. We did give them a lot that day, including all the basic information. We did give them a lot that day. Also, I want to say with no disrespect to any particular person, Cola Volpe, DeMeo, Cifarelli, Jakes, Forenza. Since this started, there have been five people in charge who have been our point of contact on this, and now they won't talk to us at all. Do you realize over about a seven or eight year period, at that rate, every police officer in Wallingford will have been in charge of the case? Well, that's what they told me in the beginning, right? Everybody gets their crack at this case. DeMeo told me we've had at least a dozen people look at this case over the years. And I think 32 years merits at least a dozen detectives. Uh, You know, reorganizing the file is one thing, but delving deep into it, understanding it, and being able to talk about it with someone like me who just picks it up in my off time, I think is an important task. You mentioned Laura West. Nancy and Mimi would like to hear anything else you've got about Laura West that they should know about. Look, so she, this is a tricky one because she didn't want to let me use her voice for the podcast. She just wanted to let me use her words. She's got a lot of weird things that just rubbed her the wrong way about the Vincent family, about everybody. And I don't necessarily feel like those are, are, are fair to share for Paul and Sarah. I do know that she knew Sharon was extremely unhappy. I think Sharon weirded her out a lot. I think she is the wife of an intellectual farmer and, you know, has lived a life of privilege and didn't necessarily understand what was happening with this woman who was clearly scared of the man she was living with. Clearly there was something really wrong. And, you know, she's just very freaked out, I think, when I speak to her. And so I I guess I just want to convey that, that she had a really bad feeling. So when you hear someone say, Mark and Sharon were a really happy couple and everything seemed great. And then all of a sudden stuff went really dark. That's not how it happened. And Laura was there from the beginning to watch it crumble. Uh, Skip Sieber, another super fan. Hey, Skip. I say if it wasn't for me, Skip would be the Watson to your Sherlock. He is. And he would be your producer, no doubt. He asked a couple questions here. Uh, first one, he says, I think I can answer this one myself, but I'll, I'll give you the shot. Do you have any idea what the WPD is doing differently since this case was reclassified as a homicide? Are they re-interviewing witnesses? <laughs> no. That's, that's why we already did that part. <laughs> Maybe they are now. I mean, who's to say that they're not? They say they're interviewing new witnesses. And like I said, they're getting in touch with people who they hear about on Sticky Beak. 
and um, they're doing a new forensic testing, although I don't know what they would. Do you get any new names for them this week they should go check out? <laughs> do, I mean, I can share my work with you guys. I'm still here. Skip also asked the question, with the new podcast and FOIA hearings and the case being classified a homicide, do you think all the added pressure is going to make someone slip up or perhaps roll over on someone to save their ass? Yes. and That's, that's the play the, here, right? That's the whole point. Look. No one's going to call me up and say, I killed Doreen Vincent on this date and I buried her body in this place. Or I helped someone bury Doreen's body in this place. Or I was there when Doreen was murdered. No one's going to say that to me. But time has shown that pressure mounts on people. Mark tried to confess to something in 2003, indicating to me, Joe, that there were other players involved. He's not going to confess for full immunity without throwing someone else under the bus. Well, there's been a lot of the throwing under the bus in this story. Anybody you talk to throws somebody else under the bus, and that just that's what's led to so many more questions and, and I don't want to say suspicion, but questions for other people about their actions or things they've said then or since. Well, look, my two approaches on this subject have always been, one, where is Doreen and what happened to her? And number two, why did the police department drop the ball so badly? And look, again, all due respect to the police, but in listening to this podcast, I feel like they felt some pressure and that has only resulted in good things. People get upset. They say, do you think that declaring it a homicide is a stall tactic? And I say, yes, I think it is. Of course it is. Yes, it definitely is. But at the same time, that little girl is now classified as something that she was not. She is not a runaway. She's not a troubled, well... Yeah, she's a troubled kid, but she's not just some trash who ran off into the night that no one ever found again, right? I mean, she's a homicide victim. Something bad happened to her. Something that people need to pay for. And that's in people's ears now. And the guilty people or person, that's in their ear as well. And I hope that makes for some extra pressure. It can't feel good to hear that about yourself or your daughter or the people who, you know, you want to love you. It can't feel good. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe people don't feel anything. I think sociopaths generally don't. But again, I think the idea of someone telling you something that you didn't know before that helps you piece the puzzle together is certainly <laughs> a possibility. And, and right now, our best hope. Josh asks a great question. And I've got an interesting answer myself to of it. Of course you do. Do you believe Doreen's murder was a manslaughter situation or was it something more calculated? Um, well, Joe, it's interesting because we've talked about this so much and I feel like just recently your take has changed on this, right? I've, I've developed an alternate theory, but it's only based on if there was some other outside players at work in a grand conspiracy that I've yet to see enough. I've seen some interesting evidence on it. I haven't seen enough where well, I... what's the evidence, right? Giving photos out? Well, again, it, we'd have to start naming names, to, and, 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 and we can't do that here yet, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to. And I'm sure everybody, and I hate to do the tease thing like that, I really do. Well, but... it has to be kept private, but I think that I've heard enough recently. I think that additional people were involved, again, not naming names. I think that there was some nefarious stuff going on. I think she was moved to Wallingford for some very odd reason. We both agree that... A, a guy who grew up in Bethel and worked and, and lived in the greater Bridgeport area, moving out to the middle of nowhere, Wallingford, like 15 minutes off the highway even, yeah. is impractical for your working. Yeah. Oh, definitely. 
And why would you, you have two very small kids and a daughter who is maybe not that happy with you already. You're going to pull her off into rural nowhere, Wallingford, Connecticut, right? Well, sure. I'm also unnerved by all the, the moving of schools. Right. And then the sudden move to Wallingford without without telling people where you were going or forwarding a, a number or an address. And then taking the phone off the wall. And then moving into a place that was, was basically described by some people as like a dungeon, like where you're locked into the place. Right. That seems like they were hiding or running from something or were they moving Doreen away from someone or something? That's, if there's more to that story and and if we could if there was an then i would say something calculated okay if on the other hand this was something done in that home singular person i won't i won't name any names tonight my man but if uh, then i would think it was you know when i've talked about the abortion theory i know people hate that the at-home abortion well that's people need to go listen to fade it out if they want to hear that Horrible theory. Or some sort of physical altercation where, you know, maybe somebody hits their head or tumbles downstairs or something. So, yeah, no, I, I again, I have a hard time thinking Mark would have straight up murdered that kid. I, I, I don't I don't like the guy. I don't believe the guy or trust the guy or respect the guy at all. And he knows this. But if he didn't, now he does. I don't think he would. I just don't think so. I mean, again, unless he had done something so violent, vicious, but then... To me, that lends to the whole idea of there being other participants. So, Well, there's so much, too, about other participants or that he was scared of people. He asked Sharon to get out of the house. He bought the gun. There's a lot that indicates to me that other people were involved, but not necessarily in someone's death, in her death. I think in something that was horrible that was happening that maybe a homicide or a manslaughter wasn't part of. I have been hearing so much more about his rage and how he or he doesn't go off on just big things. He gets pissed off if he drops a hammer and then he swings the hammer. And I've heard people testify as to his rage. So maybe it was maybe it was just a just a sudden thing that nobody could help. I mean, that comforter still bothers me. That comforter is soaked in something. And they had to get rid of it for some reason, right? Sure. Well, we've also seen, we, we, you and I are familiar with another case in our own lifetime that personally affected the both of us where a father flew into a surprising fit of rage and, and murdered his daughter. Right. It was the, I knew the guy very well. It was the most shocking thing that has probably still ever happened in my life. I was 12. Right. But he said that God told him to murder his daughter. And you know what? Fessed up to it because there was something wrong in his head. And he's institutionalized for the rest of his life, I think, because of it. And here we have a person who the child went missing on your watch. I have a hard time believing anything that comes out of the mouth of a person who I think is a sociopath. Okay, fair enough. I think you'll say or do anything, whether you hide under religion. And I'm not talking about Mark in this case. Or if you hide under some cult. Now I am. Um, I think either way, I, I don't trust it. I mean, these guys think they're really smart and they can outsmart and outtalk and outthink everybody. At the end of the day, I think if you murder a child, in the case of the person we know, I've never believed any of the excuses he's given. It seemed like a way to get out of responsibility. He's not in a prison. He's in an institution for the criminally insane and will get a chance to get out in this lifetime. And I find that disturbing because it seems almost like the guy's beating the system. Well, I find it more disturbing that somebody says, I'll see my daughter in glory the first time we ever talk to him. I mean, I want to make clear that whatever the case, we are talking about one person who's caught in some sort of maelstrom of 
I don't know if it was consequence or coincidence or a rage or someone helped him clean up later or whatever, but that little girl did go missing on his watch. I mean, I've always been surprised there hasn't been a child neglect charge or anything like that. But um, I guess at the end of the day, I don't think that they're going to be able to get him on anything more than manslaughter because, look, time has just passed. So much time. I think it's a guy, if you get him in the room, you get him comfortable, and you get him in there for five or six or eight hours, it'll come out. I really do. I'll give Andrea the last word. Uh, She says, do you think it's more important, you kind of touched on this before, to find Doreen, even if it means nobody's successfully (laughs) prosecuted, or to get a conviction but not be given her location? Andrea said, I know it would be ideal to have both location and conviction, but there are scenarios that only involve one or the other. I'm wondering if you'd accept either or would you hold out for both? Look, this is such a crazy question to answer because um, so many cold cases have been solved just in the last year with DNA. I mean, you see the dates, 82, 85, 88, 91. They're they're solving all of these cases. The, the problem is, well, the problem for us is that they have a, a body in all those cases and we don't. And I really think any kind of prospective law enforcement action is going to be really hard when you don't know what happened to this little girl. You can speculate. Uh, you can say she's missing or, or you know, if her body never turns up. Maybe the defense attorney can say it's an obvious question, um, reasonable doubt. But for me, it's always been about finding her. And I do want to hold someone responsible. It makes me sick that somebody's walking around and enjoying life while she's, you know, dead and, and buried somewhere or, or, or thrown away somewhere. And to me, that's always been the hardest part is that we're all doing this self-quarantine. Uh, you know, everybody's doing homeschooling and home learning and the seasons are changing and it's snowing out in Connecticut. And at the end of the day, it's been a year and a half since just I've been on this and she's still out there. She's out there, and it's really unfair. I'm glad that we were able to give her back her name, tell her story a little bit, show her to be what she really is, a homicide victim and not a runaway. But at the end of the day, Donna needs a place to go to be able to honor her daughter. Because what they've always said to me, Donna and her sisters, is that the hardest part is the not knowing. It's sad. It really is. It's a. I can't even imagine. You want to know where that kid is and and hope that... She's buried somewhat ceremoniously and not just dumped. Well, I think they also have all come to the conclusion. They all know in their hearts and they've known in their hearts for a long time that Mark did something. You know, you have that image of Debbie screaming at Donna in the car and Stephanie in the back seat, knowing her sister was gone forever. He did something to her. He did something to her. Everybody knows and he's going to have to walk around whether he's punished or not in the court system or otherwise. He's going to have to walk around with that screaming for everyone to see. And more people know now. And I'm glad because he's been able to live his life for a long time just as, you know, a can-do guy who's a general contractor at a Christian organization. Right. His conviction is useless at this point because he's gotten away with it for so long because, you know, really, say they arrest him in the next year and within a year or two, there's a trial and he goes to jail. I mean, is that is there justice there? Does anybody feel good about that? I think a lot of people definitely want to see him in court. And I understand I that. Do too. I, I do. But my, my point is, is he got to live his entire life. Yeah. Where where's the penalty if, if at this point? So, yeah, I think the public scrutiny, I think teen challenge telling their 
people to not bring up the podcasts. I think that's great. I think turning the heat up on him and making his life uncomfortable is almost better than having him behind bars. Well, it's not so just for me, me either, right? It's an easy choice. You want to know where that little girl is buried for yeah. her family at the end of the day. Yeah, the conviction to me is is doesn't even matter. I mean, everybody knows something happened. They just don't know what. And if you find her again, I think her body will speak volumes. And, you know, it's going to be a really sad day. And I I think about it a little a little bit every once in a while that, you know, there is going to be a day I feel like when they find her. We can figure out where she is. We can't arrest him, nor can we try him and convict right. him. So, yeah, I mean, the purpose of uh, I mean, our intention is to know where she's buried. Yes, 100 percent. The, the rest of it, again, to me, the conviction doesn't matter. I hope it happens. I'd, I'd love to see it happen, but I think that's very secondary in my in my opinion. Well, you know the other thing, when I first started really writing this, because it lived in my head for a really long time, and I went to a seminar about, you know, speaking your truth and writing your story, or you're the one to make the next step in your story, I decided I was going to sit down and write this. And I spoke to the woman about the project, the presenter, and she said, well, what's your optimal outcome? Because you know you're not going to be able to find her, right? And I said, well, why not? And she said, again, she's presenting in a corporate environment. You have to take this realistically. You're not going to be able to find her. I think she was kind of thinking, well, you're just a podcaster. Oh, I don't think she understands that you're a sticky bee. No, I don't think she I don't think she got it. But then I, I told her, too, that there's not just holding someone responsible and finding her body. There's telling the story, which has upset me so much from the very beginning, Joe, that like this kid had no lore. She had no story. She had no urban legend. She had no little memories of her in town, nothing. And they just shut it down on her. And it's it's not fair. It's just not fair. And so I'm glad to be able to give her that voice that she needs. One last question. This one comes from Sophie. She says, how do you do such an amazing job for Dory while <laughs> working, being a wife and being a mother? You know, it's just the kind of person that I am. It's in the title. It's Sticky Beak. I can't. I'm not a good sit stiller. I like when things are done. I don't like when questions are unanswered. I don't like when people who are responsible for something don't own up to it. I sound like a mom, but, you know, that's how it goes. And I just I've always had that sense of justice in my heart from those three little girls that I've talked about extensively on this. And so I find the time. I don't read as many books. I don't watch as much TV. I write a lot. I sort of sit with the documents. But I just really wanted to thank everybody for giving me a little bit of a break and, you know, understanding that. I'm dealing with corona just like you guys are, and I really appreciate you guys still being there. People have been signing up on Patreon, which is awesome. A lot of support on the Facebook page. Joe's been here to listen to me rant about it. For a year. And a half. That's what you signed up for. So, yeah. So thanks a lot, guys, for sticking by us, and we appreciate everything, and we hope you guys are happy, safe, and healthy. Georgia, take it away.